Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm talking with Ilana Braverman about the organization, the Better Food Foundation. If you haven't heard of BFF, let me read their self-description. The Better Food Foundation, BFF's, mission is to promote plant-based diets and plant-forward food policies that build healthy, equitable, humane, and environmentally sustainable food systems. The goal of our signature campaign, Default Veg, is to shift institutional and cultural food norms toward plant-based foods. All of BFF's programs are designed with the aim of supporting an ecosystem of diverse leaders and organizations working to create a better food system. Ilana and I talk about default veg as a goal, the nature of choices around food, what sustainability means in regards to a plant-based diet, and the importance of BFF's work within and outside academia to promote a diverse group of new leaders in animal welfare and animal rights discourses. So let me read Ilana's biography. Ilana Braverman is the Director of Outreach for the Better Food Foundation, where she's focused on the nexus of climate change and food choices. Ilana leads the Default Veg Campaign, where she consults with leading universities, businesses, and conferences on how to use the science of behavioral nudges to reimagine the way they serve food. Her recent TEDx talk on the topic is called Moving Beyond a Hamburger Default World. Previous to her current role, she worked for the Jewish animal advocacy organization Shamaim. Ilana holds a master's degree in animal and public policy from the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University and a bachelor's degree in natural resources and environmental sciences with a focus in human dimensions from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And now, here's my conversation with Ilana Braverman. So, yeah, you're here primarily uh, because of your work with Better Food Foundation. Can you talk about that organization? Yeah, definitely. So the Better Food Foundation promotes plant-based eating and plant-forward food policies in order to build sustainable food systems. And I can just briefly tell you about our four main areas of focus that help individuals and institutions and culture shift more towards plant-based eating. Um, the first is our main campaign, which is called Default Veg, which hopefully I'll talk a bit more about in a bit. But that's the very simple idea of asking institutions, individuals, and organizations to shift from serving meat-based meals by default to serving plant-based meals by default and having diners opt in for animal products instead of having to opt out of them. And then we're also really focused on growing diverse leadership within the vegan movement by supporting people of color and female-led vegan organizations, as well as growing faith-based vegan outreach by sharing resources, technology, and, and knowledge with leaders within the Jewish and Christian communities. Right now, we have initiatives in both of those areas. And, and lastly, our, our fourth area is helping transform academia to bring veganism and animal protection more to the forefront um, of teaching and research in humanities and social sciences in order to impact students and educators. Interesting. Yeah, I want to talk about each of those. But before I do, um, let me just talk about your like the overall mission statement you started with. Yeah. So how is plant based eating connected to sustainable food systems for you? Because like you could imagine if you're talking about a, well, I mean, it depends what you mean by sustainable systems. We'd have to get that out of the way. But mm -hmm. some models of sustainability, it, you might think that they would be more sustainable if they incorporated at least some amount of non-human animals into that system. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess for by sustainable, we mean healthy, equitable, humane, and environmentally sustainable is the, I guess, the full mission statement of, of Better Food Foundation. Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, we're in a world where 99% of animals are factory farmed. So yes, I agree with you that there is a, a portion that, you know, if, if there are smaller local farms, that's a different conversation. But for the majority of the time, if we want to move towards a sustainable food system, we have to focus on shifting away from factory farming. And when we're raising 70 billion animals globally, and 99% of them are factory farmed, eating a plant-based diet is definitely the direction we need to be moving towards in order to really see a shift to mitigate our climate crisis and worker safety concerns in slaughterhouses and all of the social and environmental and racial justice issues surrounding our animal agriculture system. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think uh, there there can be kind of a, a bait and switch move where, where the image of animals being farmed or livestock is, you know, a farmer that has like four cows whose mm -hmm. names he knows and, you know, like a few chickens that he feeds every morning. Um, and you know, and people say, well, what's so bad about that? And, mm -hmm. But that's not the the actual condition. I mean, you could have a conversation about what may or may not be bad about that. But that's <laughs> sure. not uh, that's that's not the, the situation that we're actually living in today. Right. And what people, I think, glance over the most common when I feel like I'm having these conversations is that if we want to even move towards a system where that's a possibility, we all have to be eating so much less meat and dairy and egg and fish products than we are currently eating because we can't, you know, sustainably have small local farms like that if we're eating animal products every single meal every day. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like just the math. <laughs> Simple right. math <laughs> That's that why, you know, out. we have factory farming is because, you know, in order to be able to feed, you know, people to have as much as they want, whereas if we, you know, move towards a more a different system we wouldn't be able to eat the way we currently are eating sure so yeah let's maybe let's start with that uh default veg campaign so can you explain what that is first of all yeah definitely so um it's it, as i briefly said it's the very simple idea of asking anywhere that serves food events conferences you know obviously because of covid right now we're not having these events but asking them to commit right. for the future whether it's um, your department at your university or the office that you work in to just commit to serving plant-based meals by default for the future. So a great example of this is, you know, if you've gotten an RSVP for a wedding or a conference before, and it says it lists like a chicken and a fish dish and then says vegetarian option, and you can, you know, check a box or write it in if you have that dietary requirement. It's just saying, let's flip that idea on its head. Let's offer plant-based meals by default describe them deliciously, and then offer meat as the alternative option. So folks can opt in if they want to, but it normalizes the idea that plant-based eating is not only sustainable, but delicious and societally acceptable. So one reason that might motivate that idea of a default veg option or non-option mm -hmm. uh, that you can opt out of, uh, as you were saying, is normalizing it so that it's seen as literally the norm. Right. Um, but do you think it'll have other effects? I mean, you could imagine somebody saying, well, fine, it doesn't really matter which order you have it on an invitation or a card, whether it's, do you want chicken or beef, or do you have some special dietary requirement? 
and want the vegan option or do you want this vegan option or for some reason do you want the chicken or beef option mm -hmm. wouldn't everyone just check the chicken or beef option and sure. there would be no like material effect yeah that's a great point so i'll share a few examples um the first was there was a theology conference in the uk a few years back that you know wasn't about environmental sustainability or anything it was just an academic conference and the previous year they did kind of exactly what you said they had the quote-unquote normal menu where their the chicken was the main option and then folks could opt in for a vegetarian meal if they wanted to and out of the 1400 conference participants that year 200 of them chose a vegetarian option so that's you know less than 20 percent now the following year they just said let's switch that up let's offer the vegetarian meal by default have people opt in for the meat meal if they want it and over a thousand participants this year out of the 1400 opted in or chose to stick with the vegetarian meal so that's an over 50 percent increase in the amount of people choosing the vegetarian meal in that case just because the order form was switched and there was actually a study that was conducted in Denmark a few years ago as well that found actually an 80% increase across the board in the amount of people eating vegetarian meals, again, just because the order form was changed for the conference. Yeah, and people know, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with this idea of opt-in versus opt-out. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe maybe it was discussed in Freakonomics, some popular uh, quasi-science book like that. Mm -hmm. um, with uh, the case of organ donation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's one example I use a lot. In the United States, for example, 90% of American adults support organ donation, yet only 60% are signed up. So if you think about it, a 30% gap in the amount of people um, that are signed up for organ donation because it is more difficult in the United States than it is in other countries to sign up to become an organ donor because you have to you know, think about that choice as a 16 or 18 year old getting your license. Right. And I mean, you know, you literally have to contemplate your if you want to check that box and you need to contemplate yourself dying in a horrific car accident. Exactly. Which is, yeah. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not the way you want to you want to end that trip to the DMV. Right. And that's, I mean, right. It's a little bit different. That's obviously a much more you know consequential example, but it, it works for all different, you know, things in our society. If you even think about something as inconsequential as the ringtone for a phone, right? You know, if there were 100 people in a room that had iPhones and I called everybody, most likely you'd hear the same ringtone over and over again because it's just what we default to. There, it's such a powerful concept. And so that same idea that works with organ donation, that works throughout society, works really, really well with food too. And it doesn't yeah. take away anybody's choice because everyone still has that freedom to opt into the other meal. It just makes it less othering for people to, you know, choose to try a plant-based meal. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd like to get back to that idea of shifting norms because mm -hmm. um, if it so, you know, it's interesting, I think, to talk about this material effect that it can have that's like literally more people will out of I'm not even sure what I mean I'm not sure what affects this if it's just laziness or people just go with what's there yeah. or you know just um you know uh being a cognitive miser not wanting to stop and think about options uh whatever those options are um you know those sorts of things it'll probably have some kind of a material effect but you know there's a critique of you know nudging and that uh, that other kind of literature of getting people to alter their behavior while still giving them 
you know, choice mm -hmm. that says, you know, and the, the critique goes something like this. It says, well, you know, um, you're going to have some effect, no doubt. I mean, there's lots of studies showing that it happens. But if this is a moral issue, then merely sort of, you know, bumping people into acting differently doesn't, uh, doesn't actually take their agency seriously because it doesn't actually, um, you know, invite them to think about these things or to, uh, you know, address them as moral questions. Sure. You're sort of just um, avoiding it. But uh, the nice thing about default veg is that the other sort of side of that, which you had led with, in fact, is this idea of changing norms, because mm -hmm. um, it's not that a lot of people have made an ethical Correct. thought or an ethical choice about not being vegan. Mm -hmm. um, for most of us, it's just kind of the way we grew up. I mean, if, if you are somebody who eats vegetarian or vegan, you'll notice this, that when you uh, talk about that, or even don't talk about it, just order the vegan or vegetarian option at mm -hmm. a mixed table of people you don't know very well, it immediately changes the conversation. People yeah. uh, are aware of that. They'll talk to you about it maybe, or they'll defend what they're doing maybe, but it certainly makes a new kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And something I like to to point out what you're saying about changing the norm is that you, first exactly like nobody has you know made the conscious choice when they're a child whether or not they want to eat plant-based or meat-based meals it's just what you grow up with and then it becomes harder and harder as you grow up to change that pattern unless you you know feel for a number of reasons that you need to um but i like to always point out that it there's more power than we think we have um, with shifting default. Um, a lot of people will think that default veg is something completely new and radical and different. But what I always say is, well, right now, factory farming is our default. We're choosing to accept that factory farming is our default. So it's not so much that we're bringing in a default. It's just saying we already have one. Do we want to accept this or do we want to change it to a more sustainable, healthy, delicious alternative? And a lot of people don't realize that we already have this, you know, default in our society. It's just something we don't think about every day because it's so normal to us. Yeah, exactly. Carol Adams in, you know, many years ago in her book, uh, The Sexual Politics of Meat, started talking about this idea of an absent referent. I think that was her. If, I, if somebody else started that idea and she was just referencing it, I apologize for whoever that is. Please email me and you can come on my podcast and talk about it. But uh, that's the first place I saw it is uh, Adam's talking about this idea that when you say, well, I eat vegan, right? But Sharon, I don't eat animals, um, that you are sort of, uh, you're standing in for, you're pointing out the animal in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of talking about steaks anymore, now you're thinking about cows. And yeah. people have to explain why they would do that. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the same thing, I think, here, that if somebody wants to pick chicken or beef rather than uh, a vegan meal, they have to ask themselves, why am I choosing to do this? Like, why, what is the purpose sure. of this? Yeah. And, you know, and they will presumably ask, at least for the first few years before default veg is like literally everywhere, mm -hmm. why is this the default at this event? Right. right? And so it, it invites them to sort of start to think about this, to be that absent referent, to have them start to think about, um, you know, the moral choices that they're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that will be, you know, good for some people to contemplate. But like you said, as this becomes more and more normal, we will see a shift in especially the younger generation, just assuming like, 
oh, this is how school events function and this is how work events function. And I think that is the key here is, again, not to say you can't eat meat. That's not at all what this is about. This is just saying that the option that most people are going to be eating is the plant-based option. And if you want to choose something else, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. I also like that uh, it invites the first option, if it's the vegan option, to actually say what the heck it is. Because mm-hmm. as somebody who often <laughs> has to check the vegan box uh, to various events, it'll say something like, you can have a uh, a steak that's been cooked in butter and has mm-hmm. you know baby spring vegetables, or you can have <laughs> rotisserie chicken on a bed of mashed potatoes, or the vegan thing. Right. And you're like, well, I guess I'll pick this mysterious, <laughs> completely unappetizing sounding word that just describes who I am and hope that it's uh, something that I like or, you know, uh, is something that I can eat. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that by having it be the central item, the default option, it's unlikely that they will still leave it undescribed. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's always something I've just said. That's not, you know, I always am like, this isn't fair. Like, how am I supposed to go to an event? Like if someone just had, you know, meat option listed i don't think many people would feel comfortable (laughs) selecting it so i think it has less to do about people wanting or not wanting to try a plant-based option and just being like oh well if i you know check this box i might just get a piece of eggplant with some tomato sauce on it and like i wouldn't check that box either unless i needed to and so it's totally understandable we have a a long way to (laughs) to go with that with menus i always talk about three things one is placement making sure the plant-based option is listed first or within the first few items the second is um, the descriptions like you said making sure it's deliciously described and also not labeling it as vegan or vegetarian because that can be really othering and make people think as you said that I'm only going to select this option if I identify as vegan or vegetarian, even if it's a really delicious option that you'd otherwise want to try, it can sway some people away from choosing it. Yeah. I mean, if you ask any vegan, they'll tell you uh, the horrors of a buffet mm-hmm. that has vegan options for the vegans that are there. Mm-hmm. And the and uh, in fact, you can often recognize vegans at a buffet at like a conference or a wedding or something that has some vegan choices, but otherwise it's all you can eat because they will run to the front of that line. And the reason why they do is because if they don't, then by the time they get there, the vegan thing will be gone. Yeah. And I, I think it's quite, it's quite interesting, right? So people would never have selected the vegan option, but if it's one of the three or four things on this, you know, serve yourself sort of uh, buffet table, people will say, oh, that looks interesting. Yeah. Mm, that looks like quinoa. I think I'll have that. And you'll find that it's entirely gone by the time you get there. And all that's left is things that you can't eat. Right. I actually saw someone have this epiphany um, a few years ago that they were like, we always get this, you know, tofu dish from the back. And so everybody always asks for it. And I'm like, wait a second, why don't, you know, why don't we just offer the same amount of that plant-based dish next to the other dish so people can try it and it doesn't run out because you're exactly right. People want to try it and then there isn't enough for everybody. Yeah. And I've run events like uh, I used to run a food justice conference uh, at Michigan State when I was a graduate student there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we catered. It was like two or three days, depending on the year. And we catered lunches and dinners and everything just by default was vegan. Mm-hmm. And we didn't make a big deal out of it or mention it or say anything. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the only deal we would make is that, you know, for lunch, it's going to be Ethiopian food from a local 
a refugee family that started an Ethiopian restaurant. Isn't that interesting mm-hmm. for a food justice conference? You know, like we would yeah. talk about some other aspect of the food. Mm-hmm. And not only did people get mad, not get mad and say, where's, you know, where's the steak or whatever, but lit- people literally didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People who were, I, I mean, all the vegans noticed <laughs> because they were, they would ask, wait, can I eat this? And you say, yeah, 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 it's fine. But, you know, keep it under your hat. But the non-vegans, you know, the omnivores in, among the group who would just grab whatever was in front of them, it, it didn't occur to them until later. Right. Exactly. Um, so that's one of the things that uh, BFF is doing. But you said that uh, some of the others is changing maybe the actual facts on the ground about who uh, are the leaders in, you know, or the advocates for uh, plant-based lifestyle, but also the perceived uh, sort of identity of who's who who says that they're vegan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe can you talk a little bit about that work as well? Yeah. So we just feel like growing diverse leadership within the movement is so, so important for a variety of reasons and is really crucial to, you know, humans and animals and the environment. We need to create a diverse movement. And we've provided support to really awesome groundbreaking projects in the last few years. One of the examples is Liberum, which is a new vegan organization working in Mexico to generate culture change and create market alternatives and um, promote public policies, ensuring animals are not exploited. And then we've also supported Vegan Soul Fest in Baltimore and providing assistance to activists and scholars that are advancing the Black veganism veganism movement as well. Um, Because like you said, there tends to be this um, stereotype that veganism is this white elitist um, movement, which it's really not. um, But we also have to do a much better job within the vegan advocacy community of making sure that we are um, creating space for diverse leadership in the movement. Yeah, I mean, I think people are rightly a little suspicious of a movement that looks to be entirely consumption option based, like, you know, buy this thing instead of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, the thing that we're telling you to buy is more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can feel, but you get to feel good about yourself. So it's very much a, you know, I can show who I am with this purchase sort of a scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the advocates are people who have more money than uh, is average in the United States uh, when it's a white, when it's seen as a white movement, you know, of sort of educated middle class to upper middle class people, uh, you know, that can be a real, I, I actually think people are right to think that that is a reason to be suspicious of a mm-hmm. movement. So uh, it's because it's, it sounds like maybe you're caring about the wrong things. You're missing out on uh, some of the most serious issues, but in fact mm-hmm. uh, that might not be the case, right? There's a way to connect um a push for eating less meat to other actually important social issues. Right. And it's important to, for that to be done. Right. Um, one thing I can definitely talk about is just the idea of the, the interconnectedness um, between mm-hmm. these issues. Uh, Af Co wrote a really amazing book called Afroism um, that you might've heard of. And in it, she has this chapter where she talks about um, how when you sign up for like the environmental movement, you're given this kind of toolkit of these are the words you need to know and these are the things you need to support. And if you become a Black Lives Matter activist, here are your words and your tools and same with the animal movement. And we've really siloed ourselves into these different movements instead of realizing how interconnected all of them are. Um, And a good example of that is that 
the majority of people working in slaughterhouses and living near factory farms are people of color. They're facing more of the illnesses and the injuries um, and the, having to work these very, very difficult, um, emotionally distressing jobs. Um, and so that's an area where it's very clear that those issues are connected. Yeah, uh, I had an earlier episode of this podcast uh, where we interviewed people from Our Kitchen Table, which is a food sovereignty movement in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lisa Oliver King, uh, one of the people who runs that organization, was saying that, you know, a, a silver lining in a very black cloud of the coronavirus is it's is at the time people were talking about slaughterhouses and people working mm -hmm. in slaughterhouses. Yeah. And it made people kind of be aware of hopefully all of the suffering from non-human animals, sure, but also the human workers yeah. uh, at many points in our food system that are uh, often invisible to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of, you know, people just don't realize that the, those issues are tied together in that way. Um, but yeah, it's really important to be talking about that and thinking about that because it's something easy to ignore. Yeah. So uh, you also mentioned trying to uh, reach out to faith communities. Mm hmm. Yeah, so uh, we work closely with a, a couple of different organizations. Um, one is Creature Kind, which is a Christian animal welfare organization, which was um, created and co-founded by Professor David Clough and Sarah Withrow King. And that has been around for a few years where they are working you know, to implement default veg and other policies within Christian communities and churches. Um, and then JIFA, the Jewish Initiative for Animals, um, is an initiative of Farm Forward that is working in Jewish communities to adopt um, food policies as well, along with Shemayim, which is a Jewish vegan organization. So they're, they're all kind of working in, in different contexts within different religious communities to help align our food choices with our religious values in that context. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's it seems like it's it's again not the stereotypical image people have uh for people thinking about you know advocating a plant based diet but mm -hmm. actually uh it makes a it makes quite a bit of sense that people who uh already are trying to live out particular values in choices that they make including choices around food mm -hmm. might be natural partners for these sorts of conversations yeah definitely it <laughs> i feel like it is Sometimes the work is easier in religious communities and sometimes it's more challenging. Um, my experience, I'm Jewish. I do some work with, with Jeff at the Jewish Initiative for Animals. So I can, I can speak to my experience there that, you know, in Jewish text, Tikkun Olam, helping repair the earth and Sarbale Chaim, um, ending or reducing suffering for animals are core values. And so when you think about that in the context of our meat industry today, and same in the kosher meat industry, 99% of animals are factory farms. So what message are we sending by continuing to serve these products um, at our institutions and in our schools? And so sometimes that conversation is um, easy, but more than often, more often than not, it's, it's challenging because so many, you know, traditional foods as people see it are the lox and cream cheese and brisket and so it can be it can be difficult for people to to think about how we can adapt our traditions um for the times we currently live in right yeah that's the i mean that's kind of the challenge because 
you want, I mean, tr you want to take traditions seriously and honor them, but mm -hmm. the way that you do that is by not seeing them as something that's frozen forever right. as a, like a museum piece, right? but rather being open as a community to have an evolving, continual intergenerational conversation where you are, you know, where you owe something you're in relationship with previous and future generations mm -hmm. uh, in a conversation about what's going to be brought forward and in what ways. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I always, I've been thinking a lot the past few weeks, especially with Thanksgiving. Um, and I do every year right. about how, you know, there's this holiday that I, you know, didn't really realize until a few years ago, what it was actually quote unquote celebrating. It's more for now me of like remembering um, that time and giving, um, honoring the, the indigenous people of our our country and I, you know, don't feel like I need to eat a factory farmed animal on that holiday to to um, show that remembrance. And so it's, you know, but it, it can be challenging as we talked about earlier for people to really associate, you know, this turkey on the table was a living bird and what conditions were that bird raised in it. It's a lot easier to to not think about it. And so um, it's definitely a, a conversation I'm I'm always thinking about and always having is how can we talk about tradition in a way that that preserves that that part that is so core to us and that's so important to our religion or to our, you know, customs as a country, but changes them to adapt to what we need to do in order to, you know, preserve public health and um, environmental wellness for future generations to come yeah i mean that's the kind of the idea of like environmental heritage mm -hmm. you know uh people who are educating about problems with thanksgiving uh you know and the historical uh let's say terrible things yeah that it's sort of <laughs> founded on um i don't know of any organization that says so let's just pretend that it doesn't happen and let's just do nothing mm -hmm. on that thursday in november mm -hmm. uh rather it's let's carry it forward but in right. a different way right? right and carry different parts of it forward um, you know, where we're talking, we're having different kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. And then, so the fourth thing you said was reaching out to academia. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is the, so what, what is the value of reaching out to nerds with PhDs? <laughs> so, um, one of the things we're doing is we are starting to, or in the process of creating a food studies minor at a university in the U.S., so more to come on that, um, but Ooh. also promoting, um, for an example, Christopher Carter is an assistant professor of theology at the University of San Diego, and his work explores how religion and the institution of factory farming affect food choices within the Black community, and he's coming out with a book called The Spirit of Soul Food, so we are going to do our best to help promote his book, and um, we love hearing him speak and, uh, you know, just promoting people within the community that we are doing the really uh, difficult and great work in this space. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I've talked to Chris for this podcast. Oh, um, I'm not uh, sure which order these are going to come out in, but either <laughs> I just did or I will. <laughs> but I have talked to him. I'm not sure which, when the episodes are going to air, but yeah, his work is great. Mm -hmm. um, so what value do you see in that lever of academia to have uh, some kind of effect on society? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, first, even in my personal story of how I 
got into this field, I took an environmental science class my senior year of high school because I wanted to, because I thought it was going to be easy. Like that's literally how I became (laughs) interested in this field. And I just think back and I'm like, wow, you know, why isn't this something we're taught at a younger age? Why isn't it mandatory to learn about our food system and to learn about these issues? Because I feel like so many um, younger students and, you know, even teachers would have so much of a better understanding of our food system and choose to make these different choices if we knew about them. But our food system right now is so hidden that I think you know, creating these programs and doing outreach in schools and within academia is so important just for people to know and understand what's going on and make educated choices. Because I think right now you can get through, you know, undergrad, and even grad school and not have a single class about the environment and our food system. And I think that's just such a disservice. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's interesting that, uh, I will, I want to know more about this food studies minor. You know, I uh, created a philosophy of food class at the university where I teach and it's been a huge success. People find it very interesting. It's really, uh, you know, it connects to a lot of people's interests in terms of, you know, philosophy, obviously. But I think that, you know, the nice thing about food is that it allows you, as I say in this podcast, to talk about everything else. It's mm-hmm. a framework that, yeah. you know, touches on the environment, on labor, on, you know, name it. And it's there on aesthetics. Right. Yeah. Uh, but also it's it's something that we all engage with every day. Right. We all eat mm-hmm. every day. Right. And so, uh, you know, we are it's not just, you know, a way to touch on those things, but it's a way that we then physically, viscerally participate in. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think can really make those classes more meaningful to people than, uh, you know, some other sorts of topics. Definitely. Yeah, that's actually yeah. the reason I chose to do this work is because, like you said, it's so interconnected. I realized I could help humans and animals and the environment all at the same time by trying to help folks understand and change the way that we eat because everybody eats every day. It's a little bit more difficult to have the conversation of, you know, you need to go buy an electric car or talk about your travel. Whereas food is something we make that choice three, if not more times a day. And it's something everybody has the power to, to change the way they eat. Yeah. And it's a thing that we always recognize to be normatively rich. I mean, even people that don't think much about uh, moral questions when they're thinking about food are still making a ton of normative judgments. They're still Mm -hmm. thinking about whether something is is still good, like is this healthy, but also has this spoiled, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like we're, we're always, food is something that we always take, but we never take blindly. Yeah. Right. You know, does this need more salt? You know, all of these kinds of evaluative questions, we're already kind of in that mode. Mm -hmm. And so adding more things that you can think about, more ways that you can evaluate food is maybe an easier pull than here's something that you've never even evaluated. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, like, like I'm going to start asking you to start thinking about something you've never thought of before. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's maybe a a less of a less distance to travel maybe. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So, you know, you're mentioning, you're mentioning your own uh, biography a little bit with uh, the environmental studies class, but how did you get associated with BFF? Yeah. So I, um, a while back in college, read the book Eating Animals, which I'm sure you've heard of um, for the first time. And that was what really geared me towards 
understanding. I wanted to work on the food system. So I found out about Farm Forward in college and Farm Forward's been around for about 12 years. And um, Farm Forward is actually Better Food Foundation's sister organization. Um, so uh, BFF was created a few years ago, but I was originally hired to work for, for Farm Forward. And now I split my time between the two organizations. So when I was in college, I attended a virtual visit with Jonathan Safran Foer. If you, uh, he's the author of Eating animals. So I read the eating animals book. I, you know, realized I wanted to help work with the food system. I attended that virtual visit and I got to ask a question to the author. And I said, I really want to do this work. Where do I go? And he said, check out Farm Forward. So I did. And I volunteered for them while I was in college. I actually came back to um, a one of the staff members there while I was in undergrad to ask, you know, I want to go to grad school. And she recommended a graduate school program for me. And then uh, while I was in grad school, I worked part-time for Shemayim, which is the Jewish vegan organization I mentioned. And the CEO of Farm Forward, Dr. Aaron Gross, was on their board and I got connected with him. And then um, I was able to apply for a job with Farm Forward when uh, one came up. That's great. Yeah. If the virtual classroom visit that uh, you were just mentioning sounds interesting to anyone listening to this. Uh, that's still a thing that happens, uh, I think, every year. Uh, yeah. If you reach out to Farm Forward, you can find out about an opportunity to participate, whether, you know, if you're an educator, you want your class to participate, or even I think just as an inv individual, you can still um, mm -hmm. be in on that webinar. Yeah, you can just um, sign up. There's a link uh, that I can share with you to post or you can email me to find out Great. more about it. Um, and yeah, you can just sign up as an individual with a few friends as a classroom and you can all sign on and, and listen to Jonathan talk a little bit about, about the book and about his experience. And then there's time to ask questions. Yeah. And I mean, it's a really great book, I think, uh, because it isn't some sort of didactic, uh, you know, screed, but really is careful, carefully thinks through those issues we've been talking about, about tradition and mm -hmm. environmental impact and all the sorts of different ways yeah. Those different lenses that you can look at food through. Exactly. But, you know, speaking of, um, you know, the personal connections that we have with food in your own background, uh, one thing I like to ask everyone who comes on the show to do is bring some kind of food to share it. Because at that uh, philosophy of food class that I teach, I have students bring food to share with each other. And it's been, you know, a really good way to kind of get students to connect and to talk about themselves. Uh, that's a little bit tricky to do uh, over the internet. Uh, but <laughs> so instead of having you actually bring something for me to eat, although obviously that would be ideal, feel free to mail me something, I'll eat it. But uh, <laughs> until then, uh, I asked you to bring a recipe. So can you talk about the food you're sharing with us today? Yeah, so this recipe, which I will, will share with you to post, it's called Jim Feldman's First Eggless Challah Recipe. And it's one that my mom has been making for a few years. And this is actually great talking about tradition is that um, when I started eating a plant-based diet my parents did too and so challah is one of you know those just traditional Jewish things that is always has the egg wash on it and so we tried for a while to find a good um plant-based challah recipe and it was actually really really simple and so this is one of those foods that I always talk about that you know we think of as for our tradition it needs to have eggs but there are so many right. delicious ways to make challah without eggs and you know you're still observing the tradition and you don't have to use animal products to do it yeah I'll be interested to look at that because challah not only does it have an egg wash but it's also an enriched dough mm -hmm. so it has it's it's got eggs coming and going <laughs> so yeah, being, yeah. Able, being able to replicate that or you know to remove the eggs while still maintaining a taste that feels mm -hmm. authentic enough 
for people that it's important that they're eating, you know, the real thing, I think is yeah. a, I mean, that's a good achievement. I'll be happy to look at that. This is honestly the best homemade challah I've ever had. It's, it's so wonderful. Um, there's also a, a place that we order from that's called Organic Bread of Heaven that is in the Midwest. It's a bakery that's organic and kosher and vegan and nut free, you know, like free of all the allergens. And they also have delicious challah that I don't taste any difference from, you know, the challahs I had as a kid. And so um, it's just a really nice, easy way to uh, eat a plant-based challah. <laughs> That's fun. So yeah, as, as we're all uh, stuck at home and thinking about baking, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's something to try your hand at. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Um, where can people find more about the organization? And uh, maybe is there a way that people can connect with you or follow you? Yes, well? definitely. Um, so yeah, you can email me. Um, I know those will be provided in the notes. And you can follow us at defaultveg.org or betterfoodfoundation.org. You can sign up for our newsletters. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Default Veg as well. And we are launching some new things. Default Veg has a really awesome plant-based recipe tool that has over 10,000 plant-based recipes. One of the mm. largest um, plant-based search recipe searches on the internet. And we have some collections coming out for the holidays. So definitely check that out. Feel free to to share that with friends. And I also recently, um, last month, just did a TEDx talk on the power of shifting our default. So um, you can also check that out on YouTube. It's called Moving Beyond a Hamburger Default World. Nice. Yeah, I, list, I, I watched that. Uh, I thought you did a very good job, especially in a format that lends itself to uh, a certain kind of distance. You know what I mean? You, I think you did a really good job of connecting and uh, communicating what you were trying to say. Thank you. you know, there's you. a lot of those TED Talks just become people showing off about themselves rather than, you know, uh, putting forward the idea and actually uh, letting people think through it. So I, th I thought that was great. I'll, I'll definitely link to that as well. Yeah, it was a really wonderful opportunity. I'm, I'm glad I got to be able to do that. Yeah, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you can really say that. That's great. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming and talking to us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That was my conversation with Alana Braverman. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Alana's TEDx talk and how to connect with BFF if you're interested in getting involved in some of their campaigns. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 